You're listening to TIP. Hey everyone, welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. Back by popular demand, we have Jason Brett here to talk about all things happening with US policy and legal pertaining to Bitcoin. Since the last time Jason was on the show, we covered the newly released Lummis Gillibrand bill. This time, we cover a new effort called the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act of 2022. Additionally, we talk about the White House recently releasing their climate and energy implications document, among much more. This is an episode you won't want to miss. So here's my chat with Jason Brett. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Welcome back to the show. Jason, great to have you here. Great. Thanks for having me, Preston. Good to see you again. I love these chats. I always learn so much. And like I was telling you before we started, this is my weakest area. So uh, having you on to school me up on all things policy, I get excited to, to learn here. So the last time we talked, we covered the Lummis Gillibrand bill in quite a bit of detail. I would highly encourage people to go back and listen to that conversation if you want to hear all of our thoughts and and what that all encompassed, because that was a pretty substantial size bill. And since then, there's been there's been a lot happening on the policy front and all the bills and just everything up on on the Capitol Hill. In particular, we have the Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act of 2022. This came out in August 3rd is when I think that got released. And I guess my, my first question for you, Jason, is just like, what's the difference here? And how much staying power does the one have over the other? Are they covering two different things? Just kind of give us a roll up on the two different bills. Sure. So the RFIA, or the one we talked about, which was the Lummis Gillibrand bill, covers really all aspects of the digital asset regulatory space, the federal level, it covers taxation issues. You know, are we going to have to pay taxes when we pay for use Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee? You know, how are digital asset miners going to be taxed? What is the framework going to be for securities regulation of tokens? What is digital asset commodities? What is the definition of that? How does Bitcoin fit into that? It grants the power of the spot market of overseeing the spot market, you know, to it designates the CFTC as the regulator that's going to overlook that spot market. So it's a very comprehensive bill. It covers everything, including licensing at the Fed. So that's really think of that as like an ominous bill or an attempt, because the the Lummis folks that worked on that bill came from Wyoming, as you know, Wyoming senator. And they're the ones that developed the whole Wyoming blockchain initiative and the bills at the state level in Wyoming. So they're really trying to do that on a, you know, at a federal level. The digital currency, the digital commodities, DCCPA, you know, Preston, unfortunately, the way Congress works is it's sometimes an insider's game. So it's very interesting because the chair of the CFTC, Rostin Benham, mm-hmm. he actually used to work for the chair, the current chair of the CFTC Ag Committee that is overseeing this bill, the DCCPA. So Debbie Stabenow, Senator from Michigan, likes Ross and Benham a lot. So it's very likely Benham went to Stabenow and said, I kind of want things the way I want them in a bill to cover how I want to regulate digital assets at the CFTC. 
And so he worked with Stabenow and Boozman, who's John Boozman is the senator on the Republican side, and he's the ranking member of the Agriculture Committee. And because the CFTC is overseen by the Ag Committee, those two high-ranking folks have been able to push the DCCPA much farther than where the Lummis-Gillibrand bill has, has existed so far, because it only focuses on what the CFTC is going to do, so it only has to deal with one committee. The RFIA, the one from the Lummis, has to go through four different committees and four different you know, conversations with different chairs. So this was sort of straight to the punch. And it differs in a couple of ways. The biggest thing is, you know, if you remember, we talked about it. We had uh, Tyler Lindholm from Lummis's office join us last yeah. time to give us some insights into that. And I remember you credited him with the fact that it was an optional regime that the CFTC would add. You know, Coinbase, all these regulate, all these exchanges could join. This is a mandatory exchange, the way it's written in the DCCPA. So it's very different. It means every single exchange in the U.S. would have to file with the CFTC to be a, a digital, to be able to trade in the spot markets. And the bill specifically designates Bitcoin and Ether as digital commodities. Bitcoin's already technically under law with the CFTC, but this would affirm it in law and give the CFTC quite some power over the way Bitcoin is traded in the marketplace. So I think that it bears a lot of discussion that needs to be had for Bitcoiners. So for instance, oh, sorry. So real fast, just let me recap for people. So, and I don't know that this is right, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I'm seeing it based on how you described it is the Gillibrand bill is kind of this overarching, much larger bill. And in that, like you had said, the CFTC had the commodities piece of digital commodities, which is is defined in the Lummis Gillibrand bill. And so now you have Boozman and the and these folks out of the agricultural side that are stepping in and saying, all right, now we're really going to clearly define our space under the CFTC, which is all commodities-based digital assets. We're going to define exactly what we want this to be. And that's what this other, this Digital Commodity Consumer Protection Act of 2022, which you were calling the DCCPA bill. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You keep going. So the, the main thing I want to say about the DCCPA that's really important for people to understand is it has a lot more momentum than the Lummis Gillibrand bill. And that's because it has the two leaders of the Ag Committee, the mm -hmm. chair and the banking member supporting the bill. They actually have Senator Cory Booker, who's very much on the progressive side, who signed up for the bill. And then they also got Senator John Toon. Toon is actually a senator from South Dakota. You may not have heard of him too much, but he's actually the number two ranking Republican in the Senate. He sits right behind Mitch McConnell. So he's like the next Mitch McConnell if something happens. So he's a really big heavyweight to come in and support this bill. So a lot of insiders in DC are saying the DCCPA has a real chance of becoming law. And that's what I've been, you know, that's why I really asked to come on the program because I want people to A, be aware of that, that this is a fast moving bill that we might even see become law by next year. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate about DeFi in the bill. Recently, Sam Bankman Fried on Twitter sort of came out and was trying to talk about this policies and ended up with a debate on a podcast with Eric Voorhees about whether you need to do, you know, know your customer for DeFi. But, you know, what's important about that date, debate to know is, like I said, the DCCPA, if it becomes law, Preston, it's going to mean that the CFTC can regulate Bitcoin the way they regulate other commodities, but also regulate the spot prices. 
That means that they're going to be able to get unfettered access to all of the traders to understand who the market players are so that you know they could even technically shut off trading like they can do with any other commodity. So it says in this bill that if let's say they find some fraud or manipulation in the price of Bitcoin, like it's going up a little erratically or down. Now you tell me how this would work, but they could technically shut off trading in Bitcoin among the major US exchanges for like a period of a month. So maybe that means it trades in different countries or just trades in the black market. But there's some real powers that we're giving up to the CFTC in this bill, just from purely the fact that Bitcoin is a digital commodity. And we've always said it's so great that Bitcoin is a commodity at the CFTC. But now that this bill is coming in to like regulate the whole spot market of the industry, the question is, how much regulation do we really need for Bitcoin? And do we really want to open ourselves up to where Bitcoin is this commodity where we're going to have a US federal agency that can demand maybe to know if I'm trading some Bitcoin with you, right? Who we are. The thing I immediately think, yeah, this is a really big deal. So the thing that I would immediately think if you're a regulator and you're listening to this and you're, you know, all excited about this bill, what people need to realize is the the Bitcoin spot is going to continue to run in every other country around the world, regardless of what the US thinks that they can control. Cause I mean, this is this has to be one of the most liquid markets on the planet. In the last 12 months, the numbers I'm hearing of how much have have settled in the spot markets. Or in the tens of trillions, in if you were going to denominate it in dollars, tens of trillions in settlement in one year, just in the past year alone. So, like, we're not talking about like a small market here. And so, if U.S. exchanges get shut down because of some CFTC overlords, like they need to be prepared for maybe way less supply of coins being outside of of U.S. jurisdiction, making the price explode upside downside whatever and if you have derivative products that are that are being constructed around this that have durations that are months to years that could wreck absolute havoc like so maybe and i guess they just because they would stop and do whatever investigation and maybe it stopped for an hour or it stopped for one day or it could be up to 30 days. I think the longer that they would try to stop that, the more insanity that's going to ensue in the global markets because there's no way that they're going to stop this thing from from trading like they can in the equity space or something like that. But- yeah, and that's that's I think what's interesting about this is I'm not sure that the policymakers and regulators at the table are really thinking through what this could mean. They're thinking no. about it like a GameStop, right? Oh, just just hold trading for 30 days. Let all the suckers clear out. Let's just get everything back to normal. And like Bitcoin is, you know, it's a beast. It is such a different asset. And again, like I think there's a little bit of an underestimation of what Bitcoin is and how it works. And, you know, again, the whole idea was we would be at the CFTC where digital asset is like or Bitcoin is a commodity in the US, meaning it's not a security, right? We don't have to have a broker dealer. That's the whole point of us always not wanting Bitcoin to be a security. You don't need a broker dealer. It doesn't need to be traded like the security. But the question is, this is also the first time that a spot market for commodities will ever be regulated. Like this is this is a big deal. This like cows, corn, everything else. The spot markets aren't regulated by the CFTC, only for fraud and because they're always worried about the derivatives. Yeah. So we're, we're assigning a regulator that's not really used to regulating a day-to-day spot market. And I don't know about you, but 
you know, beyond Bitcoin, how do you even go about regulating the entire spot market for crypto? Yeah. I think that's a huge task in and of itself. And it's a 24-7 marketplace. You know, it's yeah. probably one of the most liquid marketplaces, like we said, on the entire yeah. planet right now. Yeah, I, that that sounds crazy. So what what do you think that the surely the the re, the rationale isn't because they're just empire building, government empire building on the regulatory side, or is, is that what this is? Well, I think what what you're seeing is this bill isn't really constructed with anyone really who's an advocate for Bitcoin at the table. What the the big deal with the DCCPA is, and also a little bit of the Lemus Gillibrand bill is to create a way for all of these tokens to not be securities, right? We always have the ICOs and everything not wanting to be under Gensler. So the idea is let's move away from this SEC and let's find another regulator that you know the other tokens and blockchain projects feel like they can trust. And so that's been this natural move to, hey, let's go to the CFTC. So this whole bill is built around how do we have and how can we regulate the Coinbase's, the FDX's, all these major, you know, just in a way that's constructive where we don't have to say the tokens are securities. So it's, it is a little bit of maybe empire building in that they want a federal regime because it is going to exclude all state laws. And to the degree that this is interstate commerce, that does make sense. And look, maybe there's some positive aspects of it, but I think first and foremost, the point, you know, I think to discuss is like, when we talk with Tyler is, do we want to have a mandatory regime at all? Like th what that means is to make it mandatory. And then, you know, I'm raising that the prospect of them maybe stopping Bitcoin, maybe Bitcoin is so liquid, they would never see it as being manipulated, but no one's really evaluating or talking about what powers we might be giving up in the bill regarding, you know, what it means to hold Bitcoin or trade Bitcoin. And I think, you know, what you're seeing with this is it's a little bit of a, less of an empire building and more of the way regulators are trying to grab authority because they want to be able to have that authority over digital yeah. assets. It's a big yeah. prize. I guess when I'm hearing that, is, is the bill being opened up for comments to the public or talk us through how, if, if a person's listening to this, we have a lot of smart people listen to the show and they might be hearing this and saying, oh, I've got a comment for them, or I would like to you know, weigh in with my two cents. How would they do that in this particular bill? Because I know on the Lummis Gillibrand bill, they, ha they did have a comment period where they were very open to hearing what people thought. Is, is something like that happening here? Or are they just trying to jam it through? I think for the most part, jamming it through is probably the right way to describe it. You have really key senators, they're involved. Stabenow and, and Boozman kind of created what they want. And she really believes this is the answer to regulate crypto. So they have listened to industry and taken a lot of comments from the industry, but they haven't really created it more broadly. And to be honest, the, the way Lummis and Gillibrand did it was very admirable. It's not usually the way bills are made in the US. They don't usually get opened up to the public the way they did. So this is actually sort of more following the traditional path. Of the way a bill would be created it, it isn't really you know for public consumption it just sort of is introduced and it's really just the lobbying interests that are discussing the different points do you see the lamas gillibrand bill still working its way through you said it has to go through four different types of committees and a, a much larger process do you see do you see them still continuing forward with it or do you see it kind of just dying because of this dccpa bill I think there might be other parts of the of the Lummis Gillibrand bill that's able to continue on, but this is 
one of the four committees is the Ag Committee. So if the Lummis Gillibrand bill goes before Boozman and Stabenow, they're going to be like, well, we've already chosen sort of the DCCPA to deal with it. And, and this, is, this is one of the peculiarities of the American system because we have the CFTC that's regulated by like the agriculture committees and the SEC that's regulated by the House Financial Services or Senate Banking Committees. So in a sense, there's almost two different committees with two different jurisdictions that some want it maybe to be in commodities and some want it to be in securities. And it isn't really a holistic way of like looking at maybe what the best way is simply to regulate digital assets. And as a good example of that, Patrick McHenry, congressman and ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, by the way, is a really good Bitcoiner. If you ever hear him on CNBC, he's very supportive of it. He was quick to point out just today in Politico Pro, he's like, look, they can do whatever they want with the DCCPA. He was commenting on what ACT was doing. But at the end of the day, we're the House Financial Services Committee. So we're ultimately going to have to say, because we have securities and we're going to dictate what's going to happen with this. So that was sort of a shot across the bow to say, look, you can move all you want on the ag side for commodities, but I'm still going to run from sort of what is the security with the SEC and dictate how the market should be. So you, you almost have two different camps within Congress, you know, pushing back and forth at each other. So they're basically saying, we'll define what a security is and anything that, that's outside of that definition is yours, <laughs> commodities. <laughs> You're not going to define what a commodity is. We're going to define what a security is, and you and you get what's left over. I would think that the that the exchanges are going to push. Like, let's say this thing gets jammed through, it gets passed, it becomes law. I would think that the exchanges are then going to to lawyer up and go to battle over this being defined so differently than how all other commodities are being defined. Actually, like you know, Sam Bankman Fried, who's been really an FTX, kind of been all over DC. In a way, actually, to be honest, it, like it, it's almost never been seen to have a CEO so involved in the politics. I think that he's that doesn't pushing, surprise me at all. That yeah, surprise me at all. Yeah, but I think like at least his goal, it seems to be is so FTX has quote unquote kind of a home in the U.S. Like I think they see the regulation as a way they have like an operating procedure, and I think that's why they want it. I don't think Coinbase wouldn't object to it either, Preston. Remember, it isn't just Coinbase. All of the exchanges are, are still under investigation by Gary Gensler at the SEC. Mm. A good way to think about this is, you know, I'll go to my like Jewish heritage is everyone's trying to cross the Red Sea right now to get away from Gensler. It's not so much, no one's really thinking what's necessarily on the other side. But as far as Coinbase is concerned, they do backflips if this DCCPA was passed because then there'd be a structure they could work with and they'd be registered with the CFTC. And that's why Gensler actually has been sort of ramping up a little bit of rhetoric saying, you know, there's lots of these major organizations or banks that have registrations with different organizations, which is his way of saying, you know, yeah, you can be registered with the CFTC, but you should still register with me for whatever security tokens you're trading. So, you know, the main takeaway on the DCCPA, I think, and, and what the exchanges want is, yes, it's, it would be a novelty to have the spot market of crypto regulated, but it would actually give the regulatory clarity that the overall industry is looking for and would believe that a lot of institutional money from the sidelines would come off and start to really make the market grow much larger than it is today. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. 
As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Hmm. What were your thoughts on Sam and Eric's debate? You know, I appreciated Eric's perspective, which is, I guess, to not really deal with regulation, right? And as an ex-regulator, it's hard to kind of look at that and, and be like, well, that's me. To me, there's a little bit of, of a lack of realistic expectations. And I think, I think it's a debate that like was eventually going to happen. And I think the reason you saw the debate... Believe it or not, the debate was listened to by a lot of people in DC too. They really tuned in, which they usually don't, because it showed the industry is really divided over this KYC thing. And I think that to me, it's an example looking, listening to that debate of, I don't know that the, that the industry will ever really be able to agree on anything. Like we're, we're, there's so many different facets to it. Sam's obviously interested. It seems like creating a bit of a regulatory moat in terms of like, DeFi did really well. And now he's saying, well, now we have to do KYC because he wants to get the approvals of the CFTC. Although ostensibly, he's talking about he wants to bring all the assets on shore to the US. I think Eric, it's very good, noble approach. And I think it's important because 
I don't know if I know any more of your thoughts of how we get to a point where we can say how we can operate anonymously, like in this world with without the government either thinking we're doing something wrong or, you know, how we still track the bad guys if the good guys still want to have privacy with their finances. And to me, the DCCPA in this debate that that flared up, A, shows me why the DCCPA is getting closer to being law. The fact that it's there's a lot of pressure, why Sam's in there because they're trying to get this law through. But at the same time, like there, there's still this division in the industry, I think. And, and I think that debate represented it well. And you know, a lot of Bitcoiners, people like, you know, it's about not having the KYC, not bringing, you know, keeping that where we can. And that's, and that's where like, it's like, maybe we don't need the legitimacy of this major bill at a federal agency. I mean, Bitcoin's kind of doing just fine as it is now. And and that's why I raised this bill is because the pressures, it seems like the pressures of other coins and other projects are bringing on perhaps more stringent regulations and, and, and concepts to Bitcoiners that, you know, we need to be aware of as this bill progresses too. But yeah, no, I think that ultimately, I, I like Eric's position. I think it's it's a good one, but I think Sam is going with the political expediency of the day and he sees the direction this bill is going in, that it's picking up momentum and is trying to find a way to clear a path because he knows he needs to really get the industry united behind it for the bill to succeed. There was some big news recently. I know uh, Michael Saylor was really big on trying to get the uh, tax ramifications for how it's how uh, having Bitcoin on your balance sheet and the capital, the unrealized capital gains or losses have been reported. Talk to us a little bit about that and and how that was received on the Hill or, or thoughts on the Hill on what that might mean moving forward. So, you know, one of the things that Sailor and Sailor CPA has been bringing to the attention of the SEC for some time is this idea of how they want to consider Bitcoin to be like this intangible asset. And where, you know, as he's been losing the value, like, you, you know, the idea would be then you have to accept that there's an unrealized loss. So the, the new gap accounting guidance, it hasn't really been talked about too much on the Hill, but I would think for industry that opens up a lot of opportunities for companies who maybe are thinking about holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet because the approach that was originally taken was was kind of draconian really because it means you have to keep taking the loss but you can never see a gain if Bitcoin were to rebound in price. And I think that's a lesson, a, a major lesson in general that maybe at some point the SEC and Gary Gensler needs to start accepting the fact that Bitcoin is acting like a rational, you know, market player, like any other investment, and that we, you know, we can't just keep considering it somehow different than others, or the assumption that it may go to zero. I mean, there's stocks that have more of a chance of going to zero than Bitcoin could ever go to zero. So there needs to be a fairer approach, and I think that was a sign, finally, at least on the gap accounting side, of, of having a fairer approach to the way Bitcoin should be considered on the balance sheets of companies. So Jason, recently, the White House climate and energy implications of crypto assets in the United States is a paper that the White House recently published. Just for people who are interested in maybe reading through that, I would strongly encourage you to go find Nick Carter's annotated response to this document that was published because he puts it in some really important points that I think maybe weren't covered. 
One of them particularly that Nick highlights is the Office of Science and Technology Policy acknowledge in their in the White House report that came out on this energy climate report. They acknowledge that proof of work and proof of stake may not grant identical assurances and there remains uncertainty as to whether proof of stake might be a perfect substitute for proof of work. Bitcoin obviously is what we're talking about when we say proof of work. When I look at Ethereum and you're saying that it's going to be covered as a commodity under this this new bill that's being introduced i'm just there there are people that are that are staking coins through exchanges and they have no assurance that they'll ever be able to withdraw those coins there's there's nothing in these protocols that allow these people to withdraw the coins and if you talk to a person who's an ethereum person they'll say oh well you can still have access through this Steeth, which is basically like another token that has created liquidity for the ones that are staked. When we look at the battle to basically gain the highest market share in this space for digital assets, the people that are governing the whoever whoever is governing this protocol, this Ethereum protocol, the the, the few people that are able to call the shots and update the code. They're incentivized to not allow people to unstake their coins because they're gonna; those coins can never go back on the market. Well, the price is gonna bid because there's less of them to to sell, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, how is this? How is this being viewed in the same light as Bitcoin, which is completely open for anybody to buy, sell? The coins are what you run on your full node. You can audit the entire number of coins that are there. This is much mushier and I'd be very concerned if I had Ethereum staked as to whether it would ever even be, and I'm not trying to drum up fear and all that kind of stuff, but there's no assurance that you're ever going to be able to unstake the coins. And yet here they are listing it as, as a commodity. So are conversations like that happening on the Hill? Is the technical competence of people that are making these, these bills writing these bills to potentially become laws, do they understand that type of nuance? Well, I think, and what you're referring to with the, the report from the White House, I think it's an important distinction to make about what the White House wants and does want for the digital asset industry. And I, I don't believe it's necessarily a lack of, of understanding the way the mechanics of the token work. I'd say there is an improvement in that. However, what you just raised about the potential for consumer loss, you know, of and consumer protection is really important. I will tell you, for instance, that it, on December sixteenth, the White House came out with its framework for digital assets in the United States. Of, of what would that be? Twenty one. December? Of this year, of this oh. year, September sixteenth of this year. Of September. This year. I'm sorry, I thought I heard you say December. Okay, September. I'm sorry, yeah. September sixteenth. Okay. And so, what's important about that is that that report you mentioned about energy. If you look at the statement from the OSTP, the Office of Science Technology Policy, at the time, Acting Director Alondra Nelson, she actually said how great it was that Ethereum changed to proof of stake because it was showing that what they were doing was working. But in other words, they believe that they're convincing the industry to switch from proof of work to proof of stake. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. And, and so let's talk for just a quick second back to the CFTC. Remember, I was mentioning Rostin Benham, who's like would be the overseer of Bitcoin and all these other digital commodities. He has publicly said he is 
upset with the proof of work community. And he wants everyone to go to proof of stake. And he, he thinks that they believe that, that needs to happen for the sake of the environment. The White House is, is pushing a policy. And so they really, you know, that there is, they're almost blinded because Biden has made it so clear the importance of stopping global warming. And I think if we look, and we can talk through the framework if, if we have time in your show, but the framework the White House has introduced on September 16th is really significant and kind of, it almost doesn't matter some of the things you're raising. So the way the White House works when they don't actually rely on legislation and they just start dictating policy is to say, well, the rules and regulations are already on the books. So they're using, even though Nick Carter shredded the report, the report still stands, right? The White House is like, oh yeah, Nick Carter's right. We should throw this out. They're still using that to make policy. And so this one point I'll read you from the framework is, this is the takeaway from that report, which is they're pushing now for the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency and other agencies to consider further tracking digital assets, environmental impacts, developing performance standards as appropriate, meaning performance standards, how much energy is being used, and providing local authorities with the tools, resources, and expertise to mitigate environmental harms. And then it says powering crypto assets can take a large amount of electricity, which can emit, emit greenhouse gases, strain electric goods, and harm local communities. Opportunities exist to, and here you go, Preston, align the development of digital assets with transitioning to a net zero emissions economy and improving environmental justice. People aren't Talk having it. it. People aren't having it. I mean, yeah. some, some people are having that conversation and they're all for it. And then yeah. I would say the other, the other side, the other half of the population, maybe even more now, it, based on everything that's happening over in Europe and everyone seeing the disasters of some of these, these strategic policies are coming to their senses and saying, Holy moly, we're we're about to be shivering all winter because of some of these policies. But one other thing that I think was highlighted in the report that not that I'm trying to counter argue what you're saying was in the report, but one of the things that Nick Carter that highlights as a bright spot in the report was this comment. He says the OSTP acknowledges the interesting developments in mining with otherwise flared or stranded natural gas often released as an unsaleable byproduct of oil extraction. So they're acknowledging that from a flaring standpoint, which is hugely important when we're talking about these environmental goals, makes that way more, way more, I'll just use the word green, trying to get to those targets because you're not having the inefficiencies of flaring taking place. If, if we have policy people listening to this, this is, this is my two cents real fast. You cannot expect to have efficiency and optimization in the consumption and the production of goods when you're dealing with a fiat currency. When you're dealing with a currency that's debasing at the rate that, that this is debasing, and I would argue that the M2, the M2 growth rate of the money supply is your debasement rate, which is in excess of, of 10%. When you are having debasement at that level and on a global scale, how in the world can we possibly expect global cooperation of consumption to take place in an optimized kind of way? When you are dealing with a, a new monetary standard that doesn't have that debasement rate, you actually get a free and open cost of capital, which then puts an expense to doing business on the producer's that is free and open. And what it does is it naturally optimizes 
production and consumption between two parties. And so no, that is c- captured nowhere. That is captured nowhere in any of this analysis is the efficiency of the global economy to be able to function between net producers and net consumers around the world because you can actually agree on the settlement layer, uh, which I think should be something that actually is tethered to physical reality, which is energy. It has to be tethered to physical energy in order to create a unit of account that does that. I have a bias. I think it's. I think Bitcoin solves that, and I think it does it in a decentralized way. But sorry to go off on a tangent. I just get so frustrated on this particular topic, and no matter how hard I try to to have this discussion, I can't find a person that can counter argue it. Yeah, no, and and trust me, I'm not trying to say that I agree with it. I'm trying to give you the political realities of no, the, way, yeah. the way the report is yeah. taken. But but I will say that there has been some some night some voices coming from this report of the possibilities of of what bitcoin could do and they are considering that i think what happens unfortunately is like for instance the head of the national economic council brian deese when he's given two minutes to basically explain well what does all this mean for digital assets because to them it's like just a two-minute soundbite his two-minute soundbite is well the takeaways from all these reports, because there are nine reports, there's like over 500 pages in them is, the US has to figure out how we're gonna do research and development to create our own central bank digital currency. We have to mitigate economic harms to consumers and environmental harms. And we've got to do like more research and development on digital assets in general and, and stop illicit financing. So like, I mean, that's like the quick soundbite, right? Is Oh, we just got to mitigate the environmental benefit. And then all the stuff you explain, everybody around them is chirping the same thing as what you just said. Yeah, and the thing, the thing that you said that's most interesting that I thought about for a long time, Preston, that I think needs to be done with Bitcoin is there needs to be almost, and I'm serious, like a Bitcoin advisor at the White House, because the problem is the report is being done by our top scientists about Bitcoin, where they're really just looking at the equation about energy. You just talk about all the economic realities of it. So nobody from the Fed is part of that. There's no economist sitting there saying, well, what about the economic benefits? We're just looking at one side of like Bitcoin, which is this multifaceted, you know, thing that we need this, this, you know, a broad array of economists, energy folks, everyone at the table to really capture what the possibilities are. And, And until we do that, it, we're not going to get there. We're going to still be limited in the way Bitcoin's viewed by our government. Here's the thing policymakers need to understand. In the grand scheme of things, if you're looking at it from a global lens, it doesn't matter if the United States gets it right or wrong. It really doesn't because there, there's other countries in this world that are rich in natural resources that want to be paid in something that is tethered to physical reality, which is Bitcoin. And they're going to mine the living heck out of this. And if you think that you're going to want their goods and services, the molecules that, that, they're, expo- that they're net exporting, if you think you, you're going to get those and pay in something other than Bitcoin, you're going to find out a hard truth real fast. You're going to find out a real hard truth. And so whatever the policy ends up being, it's going to eventually go back to this idea that if you want to, to overconsume more than you actually produce, you better be ready to pay for it in a hard money. And there's no harder money than Bitcoin because these other things, the, the Ethereum, the proof of stake that has no tether to physical reality, 
they're not going to take it. They're not going to take some some steeth token because the the whoever the the ten people that are controlling the proof of stake cr- protocol that's that's going to hit their net whatever goals by twenty thirty. They're not going to take that coin. They're not going to take that that third tier token because it's locked up and doing quote unquote validations and paying a ten percent to somebody who just happened to be on the scene when when it was initially launched. Like they're not going to take those t- those clown coins. So yeah. it's it's very. I guess I'm getting frustrated because I can see how hard it is for policymakers that have sit, sat at the lap of luxury of of owning and controlling the the global settlement layer for decades on end, and why they can't see this. But when we look at the 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 global macro situation that's playing out in the world right now, Jason. It comes down to this simple truth. There's people with molecules that are net exporters. They do not want more paper promises. They do not want a proof of stake paper promise. They refuse to take it. That's what the whole th- that's why the whole world's in chaos right now. And and boy, if we've got policymakers that are listening, I would I would highly encourage you to challenge whatever belief structure you got around proof of stake. All right. I this should not be me blabbing about no no my no it's great I love the, for bringing the fire today and, and ah. well, what I'll say is like beyond the proof of stake I think what what you're seeing though is and you know that sort of what's that expression like in the end it was all kind of inevitable like this is the year like that's why I'm glad to be on your show really as we get to the end of 2022 because to me 2022 is the first year. We've seen the White House really engage with digital assets. I mean, think about it. Like, we haven't heard a peep. I mean, Trump was, like did one tweet. Oh, I think Bitcoin's like full of thin air. Like, this is the first time they've really taken a comprehensive approach, looking at the stable coins in the market, the DeFi, all the other noise in Bitcoin. And what did they come up with? Like, what's their big answer? So, what are the big takeaways from this? It's that they need to urgently create a central bank digital currency. That that's going to solve it. In other words, they want to take all this technology, all the stuff you're talking about, and in a sense, find a way to preserve it in the digital realm, right? To have it be basically a liability on the Fed balance sheet. And for people at the Fed and the White House, like when you look at like what Russia's doing, what all these other countries are doing, the way they're looking at these assets, you know, that's like, you know, what they always say about sort of the British Empire when it started falling apart, but they couldn't change their ways. They were just stuck on that their navy would dominate. You know, they just it's like, let's build more ships, you know, well, let's build yeah. the CBDC. There, there isn't yet that that creativity. And and again, that's why, you know, I mean, people probably think it's like sounds odd, like I'm trying to say it should be like El Salvador or something, but I really do think there needs to be like a Bitcoin advisor to at the table to try to help explain where all this is going. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. 
They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. They, no. they are missing it on the finance side. So like I saw a post today where some, some representative was talking about reintroducing a, a backing of gold. And as soon as I read that, it's the biggest for a person like me, and I'm looking at it, I'm saying, that's the biggest eye roll ever. And here's why. Because it doesn't solve the fiscal situation. It doesn't solve the problem that's upstream of the money itself, which is we're outspending reality. And as long as you're outspending reality, you can create whatever digital central bank digital token you want. But if you think you can force a peg on something that you're controlling the ledger as as the government, you're kidding yourself. If you think you're going to put some gold bars and say that, oh, well, now it's 10 gold bars for this many thousands of dollars and that that peg can hold without changing the fiscal spending, you're kidding yourself. All the gold is going to fly out of the vault and you'll be off the gold standard in four months, right? It's not solving the fundamental critical variable that's upstream, which is the fiscal spending. So that, and, and that's the whole thing with Bitcoin is you have something that's tethered to physical reality through energy that is going to force upon the world a peg. That you either you either learn to deal with it and get your fiscal spending under control, or you experience the pain that's associated with not doing that. And so the central bank digital currency for me is just, it's laughable. You still control the ledger from the government's point of view, and nobody's going to force austerity. It's not politically popular. Everybody knows that. It's, a, it's, an, it's an impossible history has suggested that's how it will never be solved is through austerity. They might try for a couple months, but I'd say we're trying it right now with you know, monetary policy. And everybody knows, I mean, you heard Powell today talk about, well, we have tools to, 
to solve this if it gets out of out of if it gets too austere, right? It's crazy. Yeah, and and I think that ultimately we're going to have to make a choice to recognize that perhaps the the U.S. dollar, to the degree of like the way it's designed today, is is going extinct, right? It's, it's in other words, it's not going to be able to carry. And to look at the history of like, no money can last that long, right? No, there's always evolutions in money. And so it's kind of shocking to think that we're this advanced nation that we're not going to take a step back and actually analyze possible other outcomes. But instead, what you're seeing is just a real like underestimation of Bitcoin. Like, I mean, you know, like if some of the things you were talking about, if you're talking to policymakers, you know, I were to bring you there, Preston, like, and you left the room and then they'd like take me aside and say, Hey Jason, like, what's that guy smoking? Like, hey, can I get some? You know, like <laughs> they think you're nuts, you know, and that's the problem is there's just this real underestimation of 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 what you're seeing. And like you said, is is there has to be the ability at some point to take Bitcoin seriously. And maybe it's good that they're not taking it that seriously right now because they're kind of leaving alone for the most part. They're just trying to invent their own CBDC. But like you said, if you care about the US being the leader. You know, for digital assets and us being able to have a home year where Bitcoin, you know, can be hodled and, you know, we can use it and benefit it individually and as a country, you know, it's, it, we're missing the boat. And look, again, this is the first shot, right? This is 2022. I mean, look, it took 14 years for the White House to finally get involved in this stuff. And yeah, they, they missed the mark in a lot of ways, you know, because of the focus, the over focus on the energy use and not really considering the whole thing. And so, it's going to require kind of a, unfortunately, the way our government works, something probably bad to happen, really bad economically, for them to wake up and say, okay, wait a minute, we got to look at this Bitcoin thing. And by then it might be too late. You know, it's like we can sound the alarm all we want, but it's like until something bad happens, no one really does anything. Tons of people miss the fact that the innovation is the injection of energy into the token. They miss it big time. They miss it. You had before we started. They, you, you had told me that the White House House was working off of three principles or three rules of thumb as they're thinking about this space. Walk us through what those three things are. Sure. So, really, before the executive order came out, the White House, Federal Reserve, and Treasury had been having meetings trying to determine what to do about digital assets. It was a concern because of things like ransomware, colonial pipeline, sorry about the illicit asset side of things. So they really came up with is they kind of looked at the whole space and they just said, you know, at the end of the day, the US government can't let the technology like wag the dog, you know, this 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 odd digital asset technology. It's somehow because it's different. We need to conform our laws around it. It's like the laws need to be enforced on on this industry. And so they're what they evaluated looking at all the different products and ideas going on in digital assets, the first, the three principles they really wanted to keep, and they've really accomplished this, a lot of this without legislation is to maintain that the US government be able to set monetary policy, that that not occur somehow in the private sector or through something, let's say, like Bitcoin. The second one is to be able to regulate financial markets and enforce consumer protection. What that has to do with is this concept of same activity, same risk, same regulation. So a lot of these like DeFi products or loans or whatever, they're saying, look, these are still financial products. So the laws we have on the books 
you know, we need to just enforce those. So it's, you know, the second principle is we got to make sure we're always, you know, monitoring and, and regulating our financial markets and protecting consumers and investors that play in that market. And the third one is really illicit, illicit finance, ways of mitigating concerns around illicit finance, particularly with ransomware, colonial pipeline. I mean, you know, the US, the US convened 40 countries here in the US to talk about the concept of ransomware and the danger of people using, you know, ransomware and, and asking for Bitcoin to like hold up, you know, major, major supply chain issues in, in the US. And so that's where the illicit assets come come in. So really like the when you think about things like you've seen recently with Tornado Cash, which is, you know, on the Ethereum protocol and sort of this Oki DAO where they're saying, you know, we don't have to do know your customer protocols, but the CFTC kind of shut them down and everyone's wondering. What does it mean if you have a governance token? It's not so much about the governance token, and it's not so much about the anonymizing effect of Tornado Cash. What you're seeing is a, a, a coordinated government effort to try to stop the illicit use of digital assets in any way. So if that's the Tornado Cash turning out money for you know Korea, North Korea, excuse me, or if that's you know us seeing sort of this this Oki Dow that doesn't want to do know your customer. This is where you're starting to see the government enforce these principles of that they be able to regulate, you know, monetary policy. So I think what you're and, and if you take those three principles, you look at what they're doing. I mean, the way they're looking to make sure they can regulate monetary policy is again your favorite press and everyone's favorite in the space. Just kidding, is CBDCs, right? Because they see CBDCs, they can introduce it, they can do negative, you know, at the low end of of like, you know, they can create negative interest rates with CBDCs. Force people to spend them, keep limits on it. I mean, the CBDC to them is is the way of weaponizing through the digital space monetary policy for the U.S. The way we have inflate, it's the, crazy. You know, yeah, the way we have Powell announcing the interest rate today is to do it at a, at a mass retail levels, and so that's like so the U.S. can continue to set monetary policy through CBDC. I think the financial you know markets you're just seeing regulate everything the way the banks regulate these things. So you don't have DeFi and all these things existing on the edges, bring them under the, you know, the financial system. And then finally, yeah, the illicit assets is just, you know, they're not going to let terrorist financing happen, even though there's not a lot of, of record of it happening yet. It, but it's like the colonial pipeline thing really, really spooked them. So I just don't know how anybody could think that you can create currencies that act this way. And that you can be a net consumer at the level that this country and a whole lot of other countries that are in debt up to their eyeballs that are also net consumers think that they're going to be able to do business with other countries in the world that are net producers and they're going to accept that stuff as payment. They're not going to accept it as payment. They're going to literally shut off their lines and they're say, you know what? Just going to have to be cold or you're just not going to get that because we're not accepting that as payment. It's what the whole global macro situation has come down to is that exact scenario. And we're going to mutilate the, the currency even worse than it already is. Like We're in fantasy land. We're in fantasy land. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like we have like this really good idea that comes out like Bitcoin or, or you know, a different way of looking at the the way economics and can play out and all these things. And then, I mean, kind of going to the Avengers movie thing. And then it's like you have Thanos that comes in with a plan. Like, here's the plan. We're going to do this instead. And it's like, 
but and this and and you kind of want to say, you know, I mean, maybe we just need to issue 1984 to all the policy people developing CBDCs to understand where the where this yeah. could go. Maybe not what their intent is, right? Yeah. Just like you know, it's maybe not the original intent, but down the road somebody picks this up and they're like. Ugh. Control people's money, like you know what, Jason. I think that the reason why they're they're going down that path is because they don't see any other solution. They don't see Bitcoin as a solution. They see it as like this new, like this weird. Okay, so like they did something technologically that now we can leverage some of that technology to to put another band aid on this on this bleeding patient. They don't see a real solution to stop the hemorrhaging. It was interesting there a few years ago, NIST, which is, you know, like the computer scientist agency of the US government and the National Institute of Standards, they actually produced a white paper. And I thought it was really inventive at the time. And it was really, to be honest, before the Federal Reserve started getting involved, before we even called it a CBDC. And they actually did, and it's it's still, I think, on GitHub, they did a fork of Bitcoin. And they actually explained how Bitcoin could be used to help with monetary policy in the US. And it was really creative. It wasn't like the way Bitcoin is. It was, it was more conforming to having a Federal Reserve, but having different users and administrators who could help control, put controls in. It's like you don't just have one person like Powell saying, hey, the interest rate's going here. Like Other people could have votes, maybe states. And it was this really inventive way of looking at it, of saying, you know, maybe Bitcoin could be used in this fashion. And it kind of just got filed in the archives, kind of like the you know the Indiana Jones, you know, pushing the Ark the Covenant way in the back. Like no one talks about this anymore. Ever since we started talking about CBDCs, but I mean that was a really interesting look, and that was some computer scientists in the government who were being really creative, saying this has some merit, you know. And so, so I think it's there. It's just I don't know. I mean, maybe it's it's just when you get into the 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 powers of the White House and. You know, it's it's the leading country. There's these there's these blind spots. You know, they this, they're they're used to the way things are, and they're trying to recreate that in the digital world. They're seeing this simply as an analog to digital. You know, move that we can do when there 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 just needs to be more more open mindedness about the possibilities, and you know, maybe we can have that with the right research and development and a little bit of a change of agenda. You know, with the White House. I mean. It's you almost need a president who can understand Bitcoin to really start to because because the direction right now of the policies is is nothing to do. It's not even like positive for for Bitcoin or negative for Bitcoin. It's just worried about the energy. You know, like let's develop our own coin. You know, and it's and it's very much like first inning type maneuvers where they're just going to need more time, hopefully, to understand it. And like you said, hopefully before it's not too late, where other countries just get the jump on us. I think you're already starting to see a little bit of that too, particularly with Russia. Like when you look at what Binance is doing, Binance talking about still possibly engaging with Russian customers. You know, there's the US actually is a very small part of the whole crypto asset space. So, you know, we do really have to be cautious about what we're going to give up to other other countries. Yeah. Thinking that they can turn off their exchanges and not the the rest of the world not continuing to move out is just pure hubris. Hey, so who are some of the key personalities? If people are hearing this and they want to start pinging key influencers on the Hill on, on all these matters, who do you think are some of the key influencers that are really kind of 
from a political standpoint, having an impact on the shaping of these bills and potentially laws in the future? Well, I think a good place to start, it's usually the staffers. The joke is the staffers do a lot of the work in DC. But I think, you know, reaching out to either Senator Lummis's office in, in, in Wyoming, kind of reaffirm what they're doing with their, their bill. Nothing wrong at all with reaching out to the DCCPA folks like Stabenow and Boozman's office and giving them, you know, your opinions here on Bitcoin. You know, you do see some of the folks really pushing the envelope, I think is great. One is an advisor for the EPI, you know, the Bitcoin Policy Institute. David Zell has really been on fire as of late and helping with these kinds of issues. So I think he would be a, a good person to, to reach out to, to see what efforts, you know, they might get involved with. Yeah, I think that, that that's a good start. Reaching out to, you know, Patrick McHenry's office, since he's ultimately, we're probably going to see the Republicans win, you know, the House. So he's going to be the chair of the, you know, House Financial Services Committee. He's a big Bitcoiner. I mean, you go back and look, I mean, I saw him, he would go around and do like a podcast, go on other Congress people's podcasts with another congressman or congresswoman and basically orange pill them. So, I mean, I'm really happy about his positioning. So I think he's a good one to kind of remind as we deal with all the other aspects of the digital asset industry where we, you know, we've gotten all fancy, right? We have DeFi, we have NFTs, we have DAOs. Like, let's just remember the basics, you know, of, how, of this instrument and how it works and what it means and, and how it's fundamentally different. And I think like that would be a good office to sort of pursue the concern you're saying with the ETH. And again, I've seen that too, whatever the five letter word is for the new rap ETH kind of thing. And, the dangers from a consumer protection aspect to it. You know, I think that's what's that's what that's important to raise. Remember, the hill's never gonna really pick sides. They're not gonna be like, oh, Ethereum bad, Bitcoin good. You know, that's not really their role. They just see it as two different opportunities in, in the ecosystem. So, you know, uh, they, it's not really their place to say, well, this is like a scammy thing or whatever. If it breaks a law and it's illegal, that's quite another story. And that's where an agency can step in. So they're never gonna really try to, you know pick a winner in that regard. But certainly just from the perspective, I think for me is right now, my focus with, with Bitcoiners is I feel like there needs to be protections, possibly even placed in the constitution at some point, but in laws about protecting our privacy, protecting our property, and protecting our ability to simply transact in Bitcoin. So I think those are the things, you know, with, with wallets that aren't on exchanges. So those are the things I think that are in, in most jeopardy right now. Was there anything in the DCCPA, the new bill that related to a person running their own node and conducting transactions over the Lightning Network that would impact that person? Yeah, so that's where it's tricky, right? Because it doesn't directly talk about that. But the question would be, do you fit into one of the categories of the DCCPA's definition of are you a digital commodities broker or are you an exchange? And if it's mandatory for all exchanges to register with, you know, the CFTC, what if I am that person that you're talking about? You know, and I've spun up my own node and I'm monitoring transactions. Does that make me like Coinbase? Do I have to also register? And those are unanswered questions. And I think that's where there still needs to be a little more, you know, exploration into what this bill really means down the line. Yeah. I think like Lightning and others sometimes are, are believe it or not. I actually heard someone one time talk about Lightning, 
I know how hard you're going to laugh when I say this. So I'm like preparing myself for your reaction, but like literally said, like lightning was like this way of doing like off balance sheet maneuvers. Like, in other words, because it's not on the, see, <laughs> because it's not on the blockchain and it's not visible. It's kind of like the way they used to do these credit default swaps that led us to the first financial oh crisis. So, I mean, literally, and I'm not kidding, there was, there was one of the people who was running to be the OCC chair. I can't remember her name, but I'll find the quote and send it to you too so you can look at it. But I mean, literally, her paper discussed the notion that like the lightning network of Bitcoin could maybe create the next financial crisis because it was taking stuff off the balance sheet and off the visibility of the blockchain. Like, it's amazing what people will like kind of conflate. So this is yeah. crazy. I mean, that's, that's so dangerous for, and it's dangerous for the, for the country in which a person like that is able to construct laws. It's not dangerous to Bitcoin. And that's, the, I think that's the thing a lot of these policymakers don't understand. This is not dangerous to Bitcoin whatsoever. This is dangerous to their local jurisdiction and and whoever falls inside of it, because they're just gonna yeah. be, they're gonna be in the in the back of the pack because this thing's moving out. It does not care whether you understand it or not. And it reveals a lot, I think, too, Preston, about what their intent is by the mere fact that their immediate concern is it wouldn't be visible on the blockchain ledger. What's happening with the transactions means. Yeah. They like that the Bitcoin blockchain is visible to the degree that they can at least surveil all the transactions. So second, you maybe take that visibility away. It's like, you know, but I think that ultimately like that, you know, with how that's going to impact it, that's the big question, right? And that's what we haven't yet seen. So this bill is an opportunity to maybe create that kind of carve out to protect those that are doing lightning nodes. My, my personal belief is, and it's funny that this is coming up right now is, I think ultimately they're going to do all this, like spend millions of dollars of our taxpayer money exploring a CBDC person. And then come to the conclusion that the Lightning Network is actually how they need to be doing it. Because yeah. it's going to provide the anonymity that you want if you're going to want somebody to have digital cash. So anyway, I, th I think they'll eventually have to spend millions and millions of dollars to come back and say, gee, maybe we could just use the Lightning Network. I think that's how it's all going to go down. I think that you're going to have all these this consternation, and even if they do create laws, the the market for Bitcoin is so massive. The amount of transactional throughput that's that's happening on a daily basis is so massive that they can't afford to stop a spot market, and it's just ballooning in size. And I think what they're going to find is their inability to to really do anything might have been their greatest asset. It might have been their greatest asset because. If they would have passed something, it would have constrained them, and then it would have put them further back in the pack relative to all these other countries that that are understanding it and are passing laws. Like Wyoming's a perfect example of a state at the state level that just totally got this. I think they're going to have, you know, when you look at it compared to other states, they literally got it a decade before other states even even understood what was happening, and it just goes to leadership and technical competence. And kind of understanding the inherent problem that's that's being solved for in the first place, which is when you start talking about all these proof of stake tokens, proof of stake tokens. I think that's my biggest pet peeve is like, what are you fundamentally solving that's broke here, right? Do like I can go into my stocks ex exchange account and look at stocks that are there, and I don't have a concern with 
buying, selling, holding, you know. Now, do other people in, in the world have that problem? Yes. And I think that that's probably where they're going to solve or where they're trying to solve that issue. But when I think about the, the scale of what's being solved of a settlement, a global settlement layer that's, that can't be manipulated by any individual country that's tethered to physical reality through energy and has a scarce amount that can serve as that settlement layer so that we can come to agreement between net consumers and net producers. That is a massive thing that is being solved for. And it's very different than what a lot of these proof of stake tokens are trying to do and, and what they're solving for. And people on the Hill and all over do not understand the, the magnitude of what it is we're talking about here. It's insane. It's insane. I think there's a good opportunity. You know, we never like to say it's like more of a progressive or Republican concept, but I will say with the Republicans taking over in the midterms and people like Patrick McHenry on the Hill, one thing that is a big policy push for them is always about the cross-border nature and how to improve cross-border transactions. So that could be something that could be, you know, really flushed out with them to really explain the value proposition of Bitcoin in that regard. And I have heard a couple of folks like Congressman Tom Emmer talk about that before. So, you know, it, it could be interesting, right? Because we're talking about how do we do these cross-border transactions and we're hearing CBDC, CBDC, CBDC from like the White House, but maybe it, maybe from the legislature, we could hear a little bit of a pushback and, and start to develop. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but I believe maybe our leaders will, will be able to pick this up at some point and be able to pivot the way they have with other technologies, you know, to make sure the US stays in the lead. What's the most useful thing that a plebe who's listening to this can do in, in what I would describe as a battle of knowledge and sharing knowledge to people as to what this thing is? So just like there's this top-down approach from the White House that I mentioned earlier about informing local authorities about potential environmental impacts of Bitcoin, let's just call it kind of misinformation, right? Talk to your local folks, even a state rep, you know, even a, a town supervisor, help explain what Bitcoin is, explain, you know, what the value proposition is and, you know, show how on a local and state level there can be that influence and, and, and let that be, let that become kind of a grassroots movement that maybe can be formulated one day into something like maybe an NRA or something along those lines where there's certain principles that we kind of stick to about what Bitcoin is. I think the more, and it doesn't have to necessarily be organized, but the more that you, you must have those conversations with, with the politicians that are accessible to you, because we're getting top-down information that is misinforming a lot of our local and state authorities. So the least you can do is to help correct that, help them understand why Bitcoin might make sense, why if a Bitcoin miner is trying to open up in your community, it shouldn't be disallowed because of environmental concerns, things like that. Give people a handoff to your Twitter and anything else, your organization that you work with. Give people uh, something that they, can, that they can check out in the show notes, Jason. Sure. You can find me at, at Regulatory Jason on Twitter and DM me. I'm happy to you know, share information. And then the nonprofit that provides education on this to a lot of departments like Department of State and others is the Value Technology Foundation. And we're at, at Tech Foundation. So just at, at T-E-C-H-F-D-N on Twitter. And you can find out more about the Value Technology Foundation and 
what we're doing to try to educate, you know, federal agencies about Bitcoin, this industry. Awesome. Jason, I really enjoy these chats and you're just so gracious with your time. You always come on whenever I ask and this was no different. So thank you so much for, for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Preston. Really appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.